0: Welcome to the Art of Teaching Podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Ben Hammersley is a New York-based consultant, keynote speaker and systems developer working on adaptive futurism and cognitive risk. His resume is simply mind-boggling and combines three interconnected concepts, journalist, technologist, and strategic foresight. He has been a reporter for The Times and pioneered multi-platform reporting for the BBC. Incredibly, the word podcast is generally considered to have been invented by him in an article for The Guardian in February 2004. A year later, it was declared word of the year by the New American Dictionary. He is a pilot, a pilot, a licensed emergency medical technician, a wilderness medic, a triathlete, an ultra runner, a diver, photographer and disaster response volunteer. In this fascinating and wine-raging discussion we talk about what is adaptive futurism and cognitive risk, what is Moore's law and why should we all be paying attention to it, the significance of the current shift from students learning facts to learning about pathways, and how to prepare young people for a future that we can't even begin to comprehend. Ben was funny, engaging and so generous with his time. I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Please enjoy. Ben, welcome uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's uh, obviously you're phoning from uh, the wonderful uh, East Coast of the United States. What's
1: it like there? Uh, what's it the website? Awesome. Happening? It's, uh, it's early in the morning here in Brooklyn. It's uh, it's snowy and cold and uh, mostly closed, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, actually, New York isn't so bad right now. We, we, uh, we went through the pandemic. Uh, basically, we were the first people in the US to have it hard. And so we... Are going to be the first people I think to come out the other side of it. Um, not nearly in a glorious manner as 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 uh, as our cousins down South but but <laughs> um, but yeah, it, we we are now allowed to eat inside restaurants. Uh, at the, I think at 20% capacity, and um, and they're talking about opening sports arenas at 10% capacity uh, in a couple of weeks or so. But, up, but other than that, you know, the schools are back. Uh, to a certain degree yeah like junior schools are back to some degree but um other than that it's just you know year two of the pandemic um and it's and it's winter which i'm not impressed with i have
0: to say gosh gosh it sounds like a very different um environment to what's happening in australia i mean we are yeah um incredibly fortunate to be um to some degree back to normal um we're yeah um our states are kind of opening and closing every now and again so it's uh we're kind of dependent on whatever our, our government says but um it does seem like a very different situation over there in, in the united states
1: it, it it's utterly different and and i think it's a a really interesting uh, set of situations to look at why you know in the future that, to look back and, and look at why australia and new zealand and and taiwan and South Korea to a certain extent, and some of the other countries that have that have done really well in the past year. Yeah. Uh, why they did really well compared to uh, certain parts of, well, if not all of the United States, but certainly certain parts of the United States and, and the UK is a very good example, and different European countries where they just didn't do nearly as well, and, and yeah. why this is. And it's not necessarily down to, I don't think it's down to like natu- national character, or anything like that. I don't think there's anything particularly uh, like exceptional about antipodean COVID response or something. Yeah. Um other than there's a level of competency and a sort of a a privilege of competency and organization over machismo, which yeah which, we, which we've seen from countries um like Australia and New Zealand, that we that we where we saw the complete opposite, and say the U.S. or Brazil, and and the the, the difference between the two, I think, is a very useful lesson to learn um, going forward for pretty much every situation. That I'm hoping that what will happen is, and I know it won't in the in the case of the United States, but I'm hoping what will happen is we will come to more of an understanding that that competency across the board and communal and society level responses to things are infinitely superior to individual heroism and sort of trying to shoot the virus uh, think like about that uh which you might get in a in say for example here in the us and certainly certain parts of the us which is very much about individualism and and
0: yeah
1: you know machismo and so on yeah. so it's you know it'll be really interesting to see how this how this rolls out in terms of the wider social lessons that we get, and the wider social lessons that we then pass on, for example, as teachers or or as or as parents, or you know, yeah. people bringing up new generations to say, well, actually, when there was a global pandemic, all of the places that pulled together and had an understanding of of, of wider social responsibility against individual freedoms, um, far fewer of them died. Yeah. <laughs> compared to places which were all about individual freedoms and didn't didn't pull together yeah um which just have ended up with the individual freedom to to die yeah. painfully yeah so.
0: look um absolutely and my and my hope is that um obviously we uh, collectively learn so much from this and that we are uh, i am a quite an optimistic person maybe some of criticize me as being naive uh, but I would like to think that um, we do learn some valuable lessons but then just uh, for when um, our our wonderful borders do open and I can finally take you for a coffee uh, what is uh, what is your coffee order
1: oh um, (laughs) tragically I don't like milk and coffee so otherwise I would have had a flat white but uh, it would be um, it would be like an americano with extra shots in it okay Uh, I'll, 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 I'll keep that in mind yeah yeah, I mean, that's, that's and actually, it's those sorts of things that I think are the great loss at the moment. It's very weird to be living here in New York, where I am, without New York being New York in terms yeah. of the New restaurants York, yeah. aren't really open, the cafes aren't open. Yeah. Um, even yeah. down to things like, I don't have any, you know, I work from home. Um, I don't have anywhere to go with my laptop at the moment, because it's, It's freezing cold outside, so it's not as if you can sit outside, you know, at a a pavement table. um, And we're allowed in the restaurants and cafes now at a a very reduced capacity, but you wouldn't really, you don't really want to. Yeah. No cafes to sort of hang out with a laptop and nurse a coffee and a pastry for a few hours. And so there's just these, there's those sorts of things that are the things that everybody, you know, on top of all of the death and destruction. if that sort of loss that I think is a yeah. big, big deal,
0: yeah. Well, um, Ben, I'm incredibly grateful, like I said, that you would uh, take the time to have a chat to me uh, this morning um on the Art of Teaching podcast. And just before we get started, didn't you invent the word podcast? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, which I mean, yeah. going to be known for doing something. I mean, that, that's yeah, great. how on earth have you yeah. become accredited or credited to inventing the word podcast?
1: Well, it, it's it's a thing that
0: did happen, um. <laughs> It sounds it sounds things? too amazing to be true.
1: It's so stupid. This is the problem with this. I'll tell you how it happened, um, and then I and then I'll complain about it for a little while. The, sure. How it happened was I. Uh, there was uh, back in two thousand and four. I had I had lots of different jobs, but I was a reporter and technology writer for the Guardian newspaper, and and also at the same time I was doing a lot of technology work and I was building things and I was writing. Uh, software and I was on a couple of standards committees and things and one of the things that I was doing was I was working on RSS which is the the data format that drives podcasting and I'd written a a textbook on it and I was involved in the development community and there was this new thing that that was happening where people were using a new uh, tag that would have been invented into into this data standard to allow the data standard to point to external files and they were using that to create what we now call podcasting which is uh, a subscription feed of pre-recorded audio that is automatically downloaded to your device on a periodic basis based on polling this rss feed right yes as we were explaining it at the time and one of the great things about being a practitioner as well as a journalist is you get to just write about the stuff you're doing. That's and great. so I wrote an article about this new phenomenon of downloadable audio, uh, which included you know the, the revival of audio books, because pre- previously had been books on tape and mostly for the blind and so on. And now because people have had devices in their pockets, MP3 players in their pockets, they, would, they were downloading um, they were downloading uh, audiobooks and they were also doing this and, and then the more advanced people were doing this weird thing where they were downloading these amateur-made podcasts, these amateur-made audio programs and um, and listening to them. And I wrote this article and at the time, the paper was paper-centric, as in all of the articles were written for the, for the press time in the end of the afternoon and then later on, six or so, hours later all of those articles would be copy and pasted literally into the into the website but because of that you have this very very hard deadline of you have to have the articles on the page for the when the physical presses print the physical paper yeah and so i wrote this article and about 15 minutes to go before deadline hard deadline i get a an email from my editor saying hey um That article is like a sentence short for the shape of the page that we've designed. Um, We don't really have time to redesign the page. Can you just write it an extra sentence and we'll just slot it in and then we can send that page to be printed. And so I had to sort of pull a sentence uh, out of somewhere to to fill the gap. And so I wrote this slightly stupid sentence of like, but what do we call this phenomenon? And then I made up some words just to fill space. Amazing. Sent it to my editor and that was all I thought about it. And then six months later, I had an email from the Oxford, the American Oxford Dictionary, saying, Hey, um, where did you get that word from in that article you wrote in The Guardian? And I said, Well, I kind of made it up. And they said, Yeah, we agree, because we can't find any prior, you know, prior citations. And it's word of the year this year, so, you know, you're getting in the dictionary. And that that was that, right? That was all of it. Um, It was just something I did by mistake. And the only other thing that happened after that was about two or three years later, maybe a bit longer, I was in London and I was in the Apple offices having a meeting with somebody. And there was a knock on the door. And this very, very beautifully dressed woman came in in this incredible suit, holding a sort of boulder and she said mr hammersley and i said yeah yes that's me i said uh, hello i'm from the legal department i have a message for you about the word podcast my god like, oh. she said yes the message is you're not getting any money and then and then she just walked out the room and shut the door behind her and that was it and um. and so but but since then it's it's there are lots of Uh, unrepeatable jokes that make the same point but like you you know you invent one word by mistake once and that's it It sort of follows you around right and so wherever I go um, wherever I'm giving a talk or 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 teaching a class or or whatever it is um, I'm always introduced as you know here's Ben blah 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 blah. Uh, he invented the word podcast and it was literally something I did Wow, what did what... one afternoon 20... Wow that's incredible
0: what, what an amazing story and what a shame that uh, you aren't getting uh, paid a dollar for every time the word podcast is used
1: Well seriously and, and also I kind of forget that I did it and then and then my wife is sort of continually freaked out by this because we'll be watching TV and it'll be, the word will be mentioned or the word will be said by somebody incredibly famous and she's like you know Barack Obama just said the word that you invented. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. you know, I, I suppose like that's Oprah. The... Oprah has one of those now.
0: Yeah, like... that that is incredible. I think I would, uh, if I was you, I'd be getting a T-shirt with uh, the slogan "I invented the word podcast." But
1: uh, maybe yeah, I it would... it's such a terrible word. You know, I feel really. <laughs> it's, I know it's it, it, it's just a curious thing. I hope that it's not the first line of my obituary. <laughs> Fantastic, Ben. That is a. I mean, look, that's a that's an incredible story, and thank you for for
0: sharing it and. How how do you explain what you actually do? Uh, because um, I have been um, admittedly for, for not a long period of time, probably for the last couple of months, been really obsessed with um, your work and really have done some uh, deep dives into some of the things that you've written, um, some of your uh, your interviews, some of your um, uh, talks on RSA, for example. And it's yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's,
0: yeah. it's really hard to try and define what you do and one of the reasons why i thought you'd be such a wonderful guest um for this episode of the podcast is because um some of the questions that you ask about how we're preparing for the future how we're we preparing to mm-hmm. teach kids in the future and um, things like adaptive futurism and cognitive risk all of these words which make me sound smart but i don't actually know what they mean so just wondering if you'd be able. a <laughs> imagine we're at a dinner party how what do you what do you right. do how do you explain that
1: so so the dinner party explanation is that I, I am a futurist and the, yeah. and the the definition of that is I try to help individuals and organizations and governments think about how they are going to operate yeah. in the context of the world in yeah. five years time. Ten years time, and that requires a couple of things. It requires having a an opinion and an idea about what that world will actually be, and how we will get from here to there. Because that because the development of that world is is also incredibly important, um, and it also requires an understanding of technological and cultural and so- societal and political change and transformation and an an understanding of innovation and how innovation works. And that sounds, as I've described it, is mostly talking about the future. But in reality, um, on a day-to-day basis, the vast majority of my work isn't actually really talking about the future at all. It's actually talking about the present day to people who are living their lives, operating their businesses, running their countries, as if it's five, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And yeah. So an awful lot of the work isn't really talking about the future at all. It's actually really just talking about the cutting edge of the present. Yeah. Um, the clo- another way of putting it is that I'm a therapist to middle-aged white men who can't deal <laughs> basically that, that you have uh, a whole in at least in the West, a whole ruling class of middle aged white dudes who are thoroughly freaked out by the by the present day and by the implications of the changes of the present day, the sort of second order implications of things. And and are struggling existentially with with the need to change not just to match today but with the need to change that is becoming apparent for to be able to continue to prosper for the next five or ten years and so a lot of it is sort of private one-on-one ceo therapy um and so it's 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 trying to be as it's trying to be as modern as possible, and ex, and then translate it. So one of the other ways that, that I've spoken about it before is 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 I act as a sort of a translation layer between um, senior people in senior roles and the rest of the world. Yeah, and that's not to say that people in senior roles are stupid or you know or dumb in, in, in any way. Of course, they're not. You can't become the CEO of a bank. Um, and be an idiot at the same time. But the process of becoming a CEO of a bank requires an an intense inward focus towards the inside of that company or the inside of that industry. And just through the fact that there aren't enough hours in the day, those people who have that sort of inward focus to the inside of their bank are not paying attention to anything else that's happening in the world. And after a certain amount of time, the reality that they think is is the reality, um, is no longer the reality because it's changed around them. And so the context that they're running their companies or running their their lives, their families, their communities, uh, that context is shifted completely. And so my job is really to it is is to basically take those people and sort of take them out of the office and show them stuff, right? Show them the world and say, look. You're making decisions based on your perception of the world, which froze in 1998 when you finished your MBA, yeah. and now you're the CEO. You have to op- your company has to operate in the real world, and the real world is not what you think it is. Mm. Here's what it is, yeah. and that has lots of lots of knock-on ramifications and, yeah. and obligations and so on. So, so I'm kind of whatever that is. You know and and this requires a certain level of neuroatypicality, neurodivergence it requires a certain level of of well, a massive level of multidisciplinarity and it and it requires a certain lack of respect
0: yeah wow fascinating but, it's it's i it's so it's so interesting. I mean, I look at the way uh, I, I look at the rate I and mean, obviously not just talking about technological change here, but the rate in which technology has changed even uh, since I was a child. I remember um, receiving a, a Sony Walkman for my birthday. I was probably, right. uh, probably nine. Uh, and I remember embarrassingly uh, roller skating around the housing estate where I used to live in the United Kingdom. And as soon as you hit a stone or a stick or a rock, the thing would jump and you'd lose track of where you were on your CD and wow. Sure. It's uh, it's just incredible, and even to think now, um, uh, say for example, with my iPhone, that is the the worst piece of technology I will probably ever own, and because right. it just continues right. to get increasingly better. I mean, as I also have two very young children who, um, they're going to look back at some point and think, "Dad, was this all your phone could do?" And it's both, <laughs> yeah, and terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you, I I just want to, to quote you really quickly because you you said that. Um, if you can see a te- if you can see a technology today and it's not very good, it's going to destroy you in a decade's time. And
1: yeah, yeah. If you dismiss it as being not very good, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Wow, that's
0: yeah. terrifying. Yeah.
1: Well, it isn't. It is, it is terrifying if you are in a position where your entire status depends on everything remaining the same. Yes, absolutely. So, so if you're the, if you are. Um, the CEO of Kodak I mean that that line I think I usually I use when I discuss Kodak as a company so so as a background for that um, for the listeners Kodak in the 60s 70s 80s early 90s was by far the biggest photography company in the world they made enormous amounts of money selling um, photographic film Um, they they were they have a company town Rochester New York which is a down of like half a million people and uh which em- they employed enormous numbers of people around the world and there were all of these sub-businesses you know if you remember growing up right that the, there were places on the high street where you could go and drop off your the film and come back a couple of hours later and pick up your 24 photos and, and now you know, it's almost
0: retro um
1: that is incredibly <laughs> retro right. Yeah. right and 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 the, what happened with with kodak was yeah. that they actually invented the digital camera Wow. They had a digital camera in the late seventies, um, and the and it was the size of a, of a four draw filing cabinet. You know, it was huge, and the photos it took were terrible. And it recorded those photos actually onto audio cassette, which probably half of the audience don't even, have never even seen, right? But an audio cassette is a thing, and they- It's sad that you have to define what
0: that is, uh, but I, yeah, an audio cassette was a thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that was a thing, and then, but but the point was, was that the the Kodak board dismissed it, and they dismissed it because the quality of the photography was objectively terrible, yeah. and especially when you compare it to, say, Kodachrome, which is, you know, the Kodak's incredibly beautiful transparency film. Yes. so. But they made this fundamental mistake which was that they didn't recognize that a technology-based solution get better over time and get better on an exponential curve so it so we talk about a thing called moore's law which is the general rule of thumb that says that for any every year uh, the price of putting a certain number of of um well, Every year, for the same amount of money, you can put twice as many components onto an integrated circuit. Or the yes. alternative is, for the same uh, for the same a number of components, the price halves. But regardless, whichever way you look at it, um, it it talks to this sort of exponential growth, this sort of doubling and doubling and doubling again of of technological capability. And so Kodak were rationally correct. To not bother putting any money into the digital camera project in the late seventies because they were in the film business and it wasn't a very good camera. But the mistake they made was was not paying any attention to digital photography because, sure, in the eighties it was still terrible, and in the early nineties it was pretty terrible. And when I got my first reporting job on the, the Times in, in the Times of London, um, nineteen ninety seven in the summer of 97 i wrote a we wrote an article which was about will digital cameras ever be ready to take on holiday and in 1998 we wrote an article which was you know here are three digital cameras uh, that cost 3000 pounds each that you could possibly take on holiday and then the next year we wrote here are 10 digital cameras for less than 500 pounds that you could take on holiday and then the next year was do you remember film cameras? Mm-hmm. Right? Because because yeah. people went and then in and then a few years later, in two thousand and seven, when the iPhone came out, that year more photographs were taken on iPhones than had been taken in all of human history beforehand. Gosh. Right. And that was the year that Kodak started to, you know, went horrendously bankrupt. Because There are so many advantages of digital cameras over film cameras that as soon as they became good enough, they destroyed the film industry. The film industry just went away, right? And and yeah, I hung around for a few years because National Geographic or fashion photographers or people who needed really, really high-res stuff were still using film. But then as soon as you had 20 megapixel filters, 20 megapixel sensors on a Canon, you know, SLR, then suddenly National Geographic went digital and Vogue went digital and so, and that was it. And Kodak went horribly bankrupt. And that entire town was sort of destroyed, you know, was was ruined for 10 years. And it was the fundamental mistake was that they looked at the technology and they said, that's terrible. And they didn't go to the second step, which is, but but eventually it won't be terrible. And when it's not terrible, it will kill us. Yeah. yeah. And so we need to see that. Fascinating, and you and that is exactly the same thing that happens with with so many industries, uh, because it's very, very. It's a very human reaction to look at something which might be an existential threat and to sort of bargain it away and to say, yeah, this isn't really going to come and get get us because look at it, it's 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 terrible, right? But history is just filled with examples of things which were dismissed as being bad or which were dismissed as being toys. And then went on to be hugely dominant yeah. and just overwhelm the people who dismissed it. The the, the the IBM PC when it came out was was dismissed as a toy. It's just it's just trivial computing, right? It's not like a main it's not like real manly mainframe computing. This is a this is this is barely worth anything. Right? But of course a lot of that stuff is worth a lot. And the same thing for um newspapers looking at the web or magazines looking at, at the web or or um uh, tv and film movie producers looking at youtube yeah or even or even at tiktok or something like that right um and exactly the same thing for um some people in the education profession looking at things like khan academy yeah or or um those sorts of those sorts of services five ten years ago, and just saying those are not that's not relevant to us because it's not nearly as good. But the but, but not so, nearly as good is actually better.
0: So uh, it's, it's it's so fascinating, isn't it? And there's no reason why uh, to assume that history won't repeat itself. And so I wonder what are the things that are currently terrible that we are underestimating, and the things that are actually. Uh, um, kind of coming up on the blind side. Do you have any thoughts on that? About what lessons do you think can we learn from some of those mistakes? And do you think that there are inevitably things that we are underestimating as a society that will actually have radical or, or, or changes uh, fundamentally?
1: Yeah, I think I think there are some things we should actually see that happening in real time right now. Yeah. Um, I think the the past couple of years we've seen electric vehicles uh go from being kind of a joke to uh very obviously the only thing that's going to happen going to happen going forward yeah. i mean ford, ford two days ago came out and said at least in europe they're not going to make petrol driven vehicles from 2030. and general motors said the same thing you know roughly the same timeline like a week previous and So, so you have, and Norway is banning petrol vehicles, and and so many cities in Europe they're banning petrol vehicles. Uh, So, I think, I think electric vehicles have gone from being vaguely silly to being dominant. You know, it's being the they will be the dominant, if not the only thing you can get um, before your kids or mine are able to drive. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 i have an electric car now and it's it's kind of amazing um but i i can pretty much guarantee you that my six-year-old will never ever ever pump gas like she will never fill the petrol tank of her car it it'll be a, and, and and when you exp- and I, i'm pretty sure you know she's in 10 years time when she gets a driver's license it will have to explain what that weird incredibly flammable liquid that people are pouring into the back of their vehicle is yes because if she if she learns to drive at all if she learns to drive at all absolutely but but so that thing and I think alongside with that technology the the digital the electric car technology is, has been the driver for that which are, are the very powerful and very efficient electric motors and very powerful and very efficient electric batteries and that has led to um, the electric assist bicycle. And the those electric scooters and the and the app, app rented electric scooters that are really all over um, increasingly all over the world and I think again, if you're looking for a really interesting change in transportation, which leads to a change in lifestyle, which leads to a change in city design, which leads to a change in local governance and and so on, it's the electric assist bike Wow. I do a lot of work on the future of transportation for people and and they're always coming to me saying you know what's the future of transportation is it self-driving cars or self-driving trucks and it's it's not i mean it is those things will happen eventually maybe but the but the future of transportation is the electric assist cargo bike gosh yeah by far easily because once you see because once you've seen a modern one if you've ever ridden a modern electric assist bike they're amazing and yeah. they're a joy like you get on them and you and and after a few minutes of riding it you're like oh yeah. this is this is the future and it's not just a future for me it's a future for my 75 year old father who, want, yeah. who who wouldn't cycle but now you can get an electric assist one they're amazing and same thing for taking your kids to school in a cargo bike it's you know, with,
0: yeah, fascinating. And, and Ben, you—I um, heard you share a wonderful story about your um, your daughter and her pet robot uh, that yeah. that walked that walked to school. I thought that was a really. Um, would you mind maybe unpacking unpacking that? It's a actually,
1: really actually, it's a really I'm, beautiful story. I'm actually resting my feet on that robot as we speak. Um, this this must so we be have
0: this a the future. It must be like you've got a <laughs> this robot as a footstool, and I'm calling <laughs> you from 16 hours in the future. So it does a uh, it does seem like the future is here
1: it does so i have a, a a segway it's a prototype segway robot which is so the those sorts of s- self-balancing segway scooter things have been around for a long time yeah and the ones that <clears> only <throat> come up to your knees they've been around for a long time people are, you see them around um but they've done a, a robotic version of that which you can you can put into scooter mode and you can just ride it around or when you get off it you can put it into robot mode and it and some cameras activate and and it's a screen appears and turns around, it has a face on it. So it has a certain level of anthropomorphization to it. But it has voice activation and you can you can tell it to follow you and it will follow you. And back when we were living in California a couple of years ago, for a few years, I would take my daughter to to her kindergarten on it. She, I'd basically give her a piggyback and then ride on it down the beach. And, um, and we would stop off at a cafe, that was a few hundred yards from the school every morning and she would have milk and I would have a coffee and we would split a cookie between us. And then we would walk the rest of the way and have the robot follow us. And so you have, you know, every morning you would have this little, you know, four-year-old um, with her frothy milk in a takeaway cup, uh, walking down the Californian, you know, street, uh, with a little robot like following behind her and that's both a kind of a, a miracle of technology but but it's also now old technology it's it's a good 4-year-old platform and it very rapidly became entirely normal to do that yeah. entirely normal to to you know ride a robot the shops and then get off it and load put your put your groceries onto it and then have it for have have it walk behind you as you walk back home and things like that and it comes about because of these enabling technologies the electric motors the batteries the lidar the 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 sort of chipset that's in there that's cheap enough to run these things and when you then as a futurist, what I then have to do is I look at those enabling technologies and say, okay, those exist now. What what, will they mean when they're twice as good? Hmm. What will that enable? What will that necessitate? And what things will we have where that will be an obvious next step? So sure, as a relatively young person with a, with a little kid, taking a kid to school, um, it's fun and entertaining, but... But a robot that can carry your shopping home for you—it would be will be amazing, for, um, you know, older people,
0: yeah, yeah, for
1: example, or just, or just um, you know, people who like to travel a lot and don't want to put their back out carrying <laughs> a bag. Uh, wow. And yeah, it's a bit large and clunky right now, and but again, in the future, and so with my clients. When you have clients who are, who are making decisions for example um, building design or shopping mall design or airport design you have to they have to come to terms with the fact that they are making decisions that are going to like they're making architectural decisions for example which will affect 30 years of the life of a building in 20 years time. And so the majority of the lifetime of the building that they're designing will be in a future that we cannot conceive. And so you have to, they have to think about, okay, what what we have, what's on the cutting edge now, how might that evolve? And then what will the world that that exists in look like? Because we're building a building that's going to last 50 years, we have to build a building for that time.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and this has parallels in everything, like in, in education, for example, educating the 10 year old today for the world of today is insane because they, no, because they don't exist in the world of today, educationally. they You're educating them for the world in 10 years time or 15 mm. years time, 20 years time. Yeah. And so you have to make this sort of, so there has to be a bit of thinking at least beyond the fundamentals. There has to be a bit of thinking of saying, well, what are we what are we teaching them or what are we how are we raising our children as parents uh what are we teaching them for in terms of what's the target right mm. and if the target is if you are making decisions based on what the country needs today or what like what industry is asking for today or that sort of thing um then you're making a fundamental error because that's not when they're going to be using the teaching. You know, yeah, yeah. they're going to be being Absolutely. in the world in in, in 20, 2040. Yeah. And so that that has led to a lot of different projects. We, I did a, a whole series of things. The code name was Teach Your Toddler to Type, which was slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, but it was looking at what soft Skills and what learnings, what, what hard fact learning do will should we be teaching our preschool kids in at the time it was 2018, 2018, 2019, um, given the fact that they will be using those things in the world of 2030, wow. 2035. <clears throat> and when you start thinking, when you start thinking that way, it leads you to some very, very interesting conclusions, yeah. which are usually fundamentally at odds with uh, traditionalists and specifically traditional pol- politician thinking about what yeah. education should be.
0: It's absolutely fascinating, Ben. And I think um, I, I remember watching a. Um, I think it was a, a Senate trial, I could have got this wrong, uh, between uh, Mark Zuckerberg and policymakers. And I just thought it was hilarious because he was explaining, uh, there were these people, respectfully, that were making these decisions about the future of uh, technology and privacy and security and surveillance and so on and so forth. But yet he was explaining um, to them things like what friend requests were and what uh, geotagging yeah. was and what poking meant. And And look, it wasn't so much criticism of the of the US government, but what it really... Um, reminded me of is that there are people that are making decisions about these very complex issues right now that will not only not be around to see the ramifications of their decisions but also that they really have no idea or no understanding of, of this uncertain future what are your what are your some some of your thoughts on that in terms of the decisions that need to be made now to to prepare for that uncertain future
1: well, I, I think you're making a very uh, you, you're alluding to something that is very true that we we seem to have entrusted our future to people who are completely confused by the present. And that's not just
0: the, the US. I'm that's a global issue, but uh, yeah,
1: it's a, it's a very much a global issue. Apart from certain very notable exceptions, there are certain yes. countries which I think are extremely on 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 it. Yes, but, and not necessarily the ones that you, you think. I mean, Estonia is to me is the most advanced country in the world in this way. Weirdly. Um, for lots of interesting reasons, but but to, t- to take your question, the vast majority of decisions actually are made by people who have no idea what they're talking about in terms of this sort of thing. Yeah, um, because for lots of different reasons, one because of the political cycle, um, because of the demographics of voters. You know, if you have a much if you have an older age group, they're voting really not for nostalgia more than for future thinking, because they don't really care about what's going to happen in 2040 because they'll all be dead then anyway. We are uh, both, um,
0: uh, sorry to interrupt, then we are both obviously uh, residents of the United Kingdom and such. Uh, sure. I think there's a very uh, recent example of that, which I think is is fascinating in terms of people clinging on to um, uh to the past and not really embracing the future. Sorry to interrupt, that's just a bit of a side no, note. No, no,
1: that's that's absolutely that's absolutely a a perfect crystallization of this problem. The the whole Brexit um sort of attempt to to like weirdly reclaim the British Empire or something like that in this incredibly strange way that that really does go through British British society at almost every level, even down to TV programs, right? Like what's the big hit TV show is The Crown, right? Which is again, a fundamentally a sort of, you know, okay, in the latest series, The Queen doesn't come off very well, but the whole thing is really, uh, is like a nostalgia filled thing. And the country is com- utterly obsessed with the two world wars, utterly obsessed with them. You know, yeah. and lest we forget, the vast majority of people who fought in those world wars are all dead. Right? Uh, certainly, World War yeah. uh, One. You know, uh, it was the you know it was the hundredth anniversary of the end of World War One a couple of years ago, and there were these huge like celebrations and and all this sort of cultural activity around it and literally no one remembers it and no, because they're all dead and because it was 100 years ago and um, no one could explain what the war was about either, right? It, it was incredibly obscure European conflict actually and the reasons for it were long and obscure and strange and insane but the country is obsessed with this sort of view of empire and It's fundamentally a militant nostalgic project and the reason that it is failing so horrifically is because militant nostalgic projects can never work cannot possibly in any way work because they because they are attempting to to create not just change but they're creating to create the context within that cha- within which that change happens and so and so with the Brexit negotiations, you have these hilariously sort of dark episodes where they would, they would send a, a minister to, to India, for example, and they would say, and this actually happened. They were like, hello. You know, remember us we're we're, we're from britain and um, we we we're, we're doing brexit now so we're going to restart the empire and we'd like a special trading relationship with you and uh, which of course you will do because of the queen and uh, you know the good old days of the raj and so on and this makes huge sense to a good deal of people in the UK who are militantly nostalgic and a bit insane. But of course, when they go to India, India is a modern nation. And not only is India a modern nation, but it's a modern nation that, that had an imperial past which didn't work out particularly well for them. And they remember that. And so when they turned up and the Indian government said, interesting offer, um, we would like, you know, this, 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 and this, and this. Uh, otherwise, you're not getting a deal. And and have we mentioned that there are far more of us than you, and our economy is much bigger than yours? Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. And and there was this like confusion in the UK that the context had changed, that 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 everybody else had moved on, and I think that the inability to see that or the or the feeling that one can roll back the context within which you are going to operate is, a, is in some ways an entirely natural human reaction to mm. to change and change an uncertainty. But it is absolute poison yeah. to any form of decision-making. And I'm not just talking about progressive decision-making. I'm not talking about like it doesn't, isn't necessary to be socially progressive or liberal or anything like that, is just to make any form of decision whatsoever. You cannot make any decision, you cannot enact any plans without understanding the world in which you're enacting them. And so again, talking back to what my job is as a futurist, is a lot of the time it's just to point out to people that what they think the world is is not what the world actually is, and yeah. so therefore anything, any decision they're making right now is just wrong, by definition, because their decision is being made on the basis of, wow. a, of just a worldview that is demonstrably incorrect. Yes, fascinating. Yeah, you know, and so, uh, so, so we need. So one of the things that I like to talk about a lot with, with, with my clients and with people is, is how do you get that? How do you repair that mindset? Right? How do you, how do you uh, instill in yourself a set of skills or abilities uh, or tools to enable you to see the world as it actually is Mm -hmm. so that your decision-making, your planning, Or whatever is, um, has a basis in fact, yeah, and has a and has a chance in hell of actually doing something,
0: yeah.
1: And and those are skills and techniques that anybody can learn, but there's some and and they're actually relatively straightforward. There's a huge amount of call in American politics right now for unity and for sort of, uh, you know civility in politics between the two major parties. That is fundamentally impossible because again, speaking generally, you have one political party whose um, worldview and decisions and policies are based on the objective reality of the truth of the universe. And you have another political party whose politics and political decisions and so on are based on um, insane rabid fantasies. And so there can be just fundamentally can no cannot be any meeting in the middle because, because they're not even on the same planet, right they, they cannot even agree where the middle is because because they don't even agree that who is the president is fundamentally. <laughs> right and so the inability to see the world as it actually is is a real issue is this is, this, is a fundamental issue yeah um it's a great point and yeah that, that's where where it's becoming increasingly apparent that that's where yeah. like the majority of my work comes from
0: look um ben, fascinating and and there's so many so many points in that and probably uh, all of which are uh worth a whole separate podcast recording Um, but I think (laughs) absolutely it's so important I think to to get a clear understanding of um, of what the world is currently like and also where we are going and I think it's it's so incredibly fascinating and I think like how on earth then can we help to prepare young people um, for a really uncertain world which is changing at changing at such a uh, an increasingly uh, fast pace I mean you talk a, a lot about the importance of Uh, shifting students away from learning facts to learning pathways. Uh, What we do as um, I'm a parent, I'm a teacher, um, I'm just trying to do the best job I can to make sure Sure. that I teach and the kids, my biological children are ready for the future. But do you have any thoughts on that? How do we prepare our young people for this future, which seems uh, really quite uncertain?
1: So I think Uh, yeah like you say that's that's a conversation that could go on for days and days and days (laughs) but i think there are i think there's a general um set of cognitive tools or habits or however you want to put it mental models that 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 we should be teaching our kids and also teach and teaching ourselves um and i can and i can i can give you one right now um it's, it's a technique that I've spoken about in public quite a lot, and, and certainly spoken about in private an, an awful lot, which is what we call constant legacy-free reinvention. Yeah, and it's it's in many ways it's a sort of a pseudo-religious practice. It's actually kind of like, you know, it's it's Zen Buddhism or uh, to a certain degree, um, in that in that what we should be teaching people I'm practicing ourselves is the habit of of asking uh, whether something is true or necessary or appropriate um, based on the world as it is today, rather than it being based on habit. Yes. And so the example that I always use for this is is that you should wake up every day, you should wake up one day in the week and from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you should be paying attention to every physical action that you take right. and and when you take a physical action you should ask yourself a couple of questions about it the first one is what problem am i solving by doing this physical action right so you wake up in the morning and you go and brush your teeth what's the physical, what's the problem you are solving you're solving the problem that you feels like something died in your mouth overnight right and then you then you ask yourself the question uh, if I was to solve that problem today for the first time, and I had to use modern techniques, what would I do? Right? What would I if I if I had to do it as if I'd never done it before? What would I do? And when you do that practice of just asking what it is you're doing, what problem are you solving by doing this thing, and then. If I was to do this for the first time, how would I actually? Would I? How would I do it? Um, What you find is that very rapidly you realise that there's a whole load of stuff that you do in your life you don't really know why you're doing it. The second thing you find is that there's a whole load of stuff that you do to solve problems where you realise that the way you're solving that problem is is not the best way to solve that problem at all. Um, that that either it's because a better solution has been invented since you did it the first time or because uh you just learned the bad way and this is literally everything mm. from um you know from running a company to tying your shoelaces literally you go into into to look at the onto youtube and you look you can look up there's a ted talk on how to tie your shoelaces and it's hilarious because it's only like eight minutes long but you realize that 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 Something like 60% of the world ties their shoelaces incorrectly. Do, and, and there's another one, which is my favorite one, is how to dry your hands with a paper towel. And literally, it's a five-minute video, how to dry your hands with a paper towel, and it will it will blow your mind, right? Because, I need to watch this, both of these. <laughs> because you've been doing it wrong. And once you learn the right way to do it, and you do it the first time, it's like, it's like learning how to bowl a leg break for the first time or something. You're like, oh, shit, <laughs> like how you do this, right? And it's the same thing for lots and lots and lots and lots of, lots of things through your life. So many different things that we do. And, and to have that ability to step back just a little bit and say, why am I doing this? What am I trying to achieve? What would be a better, is there a better way of achieving, achieving this thing? Um, or do I really need to achieve that in the first place? Yeah why am i doing this at all yes. and that that sort of beginners mindset that sort of uh, constant reassessment just low grade not, it doesn't require an existential crisis it doesn't require like a you know suddenly selling everything and buying a motorbike and getting a mistress it doesn't require any of that sort of stuff it just literally requires going hang on a second why do we do it this way If I Google how to solve this problem, I find that there's these 10 other ways of doing it, and at least eight of those are better.
0: Hmm.
1: Or, hang on a second, why am I doing this at all? I don't really, like, I don't really actually like having a lawn. (laughs) So it's not a matter of how do I mow it better, it's a matter of how do I turn it into something else that I prefer, right? Yeah. Or, you know, how, how do I make my commute better? Well, maybe maybe I should just work from home or something. But, but the ability to step back and reassess things enables people to move ahead in a way that is fundamentally different to people who are mired in either nostalgia or in old ways of working which are no longer suitable for the modern context. Yeah, and yeah. If 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 the thing you're doing is no longer suitable for the modern context, the divergence between the real world and where you are at a certain point will get so large that you will it will either fail completely or you will become professionally eccentric. And you'll be one of those people who only writes with a with a quill pen and so on. In which case, fine if that's your thing, cool. But it then becomes an affectation. It then becomes just like a lifestyle choice. It becomes okay. like like people who only wear Edwardian clothing or something, whereas actually, we've moved on. Yeah, and 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 that can be the same for the sunscreen you wear, right? It can be the same for um, the fact that, like, it's it's very cold New York today, and modern modern cold weather clothing is infinitely better than the cold weather clothing we had as kids. Makes and sense. So I'm not, yeah. And so I'm not going to go to and buy like a woolen duffel coat for my daughter, yeah. right? We're going to go and buy something made of Gore-Tex and then we're going to go to Uniqlo and we're going to go and get heat tech underwear because it's, infinitely better and infinitely cheaper than the old yeah. stuff I wore as I when I was a kid but I know plenty of people who dress their kids like they were dressed when they were kids because that's how you do cold weather clothing yeah right yeah and that and that's just fundamentally wrong yeah and so it's 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 a the habit is is constantly questioning um, what you're doing what problem you're solving why you're solving it at all and how you're solving it and whether or not that way of solving it is actually still relevant in the context of the rest of the world. And if you get into that habit, um, then you will always be on the cutting edge, and you will never be blindsided by the unpredictability of the future. Because the unpredictability of the future is only an issue if you are if you're no longer moving forward. If you're no longer moving forward, then the future as the future future gets more and more away from you and gets more and more unpredictable. The difference between the two is. Greater and greater and greater, and at some point it gets so big it kills you. But if you're just always right there at the edge, then that uncertainty of the future is just—it's just the excitement of waking up tomorrow and finding some new cool thing to do, right? So it's—it's—if it's you, if you're no longer moving forward, then if you're no longer right on the cutting edge, then that uncertainty becomes incredibly, incredibly dominant in your yeah. in your life. But if you, but if you're just you know excitedly discovering new stuff all the time then actually the, that uncertainty becomes a positive thing if yeah. you wake up every morning going cool like i wonder what new stuff i'm going to experience today yeah then that's exciting but if you all uh, final example if you always eat lunch in the same place every day then when that place closes as it inevitably will then that will be devastating but if every but if every day or on a regular basis you go and try new places and new types of food then if the old place that you like closes yes that will be sad and you'll have great memories of that place but you'll also be excited about the new place you're trying tomorrow yeah and so the uncertainty stops being a problem and actually starts being a source of of Vivacity and the yeah. source of, of prosperity and the in the in the real sense, right? It's a source of being able to prosper in yeah. the world, and so and so. I, I what I try to teach my you know old white dude clients, and what I try to teach my daughter, you know, six and a half, is basically the same thing, which is you got to try new stuff because there's always going to be new stuff, and if you take pleasure in new stuff, then you have an infinite source of pleasure for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But if you don't try new stuff, then the old stuff will go away eventually. And at that point, you're left with just sadness. And also, the opportunity is you'll when you then try new stuff, because you have to because the old place shut down, you realize that you spent 20 years eating the same sandwich when you could have been eating something cool. Yeah. Right? If you haven't tried bubble tea yet, you've missed out on all the bubble teas you should have had in the past few years, That's right? right, Which is a problem. Yeah. So it's a, it's a thing of being like joyfully open to the future. And yet to do that, you can be like right on the cutting edge and it becomes, instead of being a fear-based thing, it comes an excitement. Fantastic. Okay.
0: Ben, that is, I mean, what a wonderful uh, place to wrap things up. I think it's a really, um, what a lovely analogy of um, embracing the future. And looking at uh, infinite possibilities as opposed to continuing to do the same things that we've always done. I, I love your uh, your optimism and your excitement and your passion for the future. And I'm actually really excited to keep discovering your work. I just recently um, downloaded one of your one of your books, so that should uh, take me away from my household duties for a while. Um, oh. But I can't wait to read it, Ben. But um, just a final question: It would be a, a miss of me um, if I didn't ask. Where people can find out about more more about you and follow your work. Where's a good place to touch base with you? Uh,
1: if you want terrible jokes, Twitter is always good. Um, I guess I
0: can, uh, yes, I can I, vouch I, for that. <laughs> yes. I,
1: I, regular, I, I regularly uh, my my Twitter is is regularly deleted. In terms, of the entries auto-delete after a couple of days, so so um, don't be freaked out by the fact there's infinitely fewer entries than there should be for such an old account. Um, I give lots of talks and things, which are all over, all over the, uh, all over the web on YouTube and so on. Um, I did a TV series for the BBC, which may be available on some streaming platform near you. It tends, it tends to move around. It was on Netflix at one point, and then it was on Amazon. I don't know where it is right now, but that's all about cybercrime, which is quite good. And then I actually, depending on, uh, depending on, you know, the global pandemic. I'm meant to be speaking in Sydney at an event in June. So I'll be in Sydney in June, but who knows? It's the middle of February right now. And between now and then we could be hit by an asteroid or, or whatever. So I've had both my, both my vaccine shots. So I'm epidemiologically ready to go, but it really depends on, you know, border control and and quarantines and that sort of thing. So it may well be that, that there'll be, you know, we'll be having coffee in the middle of a Sydney winter in uh, in June, but, or it'll just be people seeing extremely random uh, silly jokes on, on on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, just for your information, the Sydney winter is not too bad at all. Uh, no,
1: I know. I've, 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 I've been to Sydney in the winter. I have, I have, um, I've run around, I've, I've run through the gardens and, uh, by the opera house and, and all such matters and I'm very much looking forward to it. I have I have increasing fantasies of of uh, Australian uh breakfasts. Yeah. They do really good breakfasts. I do. Um it's it's my I'm filled with the joy of of uh, of that.
0: So <laughs> so so yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. I really do appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully uh, we can do a round two sometime. Thank you very much. I would love to. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com And remember to subscribe for future episodes. If you could also let me know what your thoughts about our discussions were, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share the resource with anyone that you think would find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.